Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Science Report, a podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. I'm your host, Peter Bach, a managing director here at Back Bay in Boston. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming a guest, Alexander Knotts, the Secretary General of the European Confederation of Pharmaceutical Entrepreneurs, or UCOPE. UCOPE is a trade body for pharma, biotech, and medtech companies in Europe, providing expertise in the EU as it pertains to a number of strategic issues for companies, such as regulatory paths and pricing and market access, among others. Alexander is a lawyer by training and an accomplished advisor to regulatory agencies and sponsor companies alike. From 2008 to 2013, Alexander was head of the BPI, I'm not going to try to pronounce that in German, a German pharma trade association. Prior to his stint at BPI, Alexander was at the Strater Law, where he focused on many issues as they pertain to the pharma industry, including the licensing of pharmaceuticals. Additionally, he has served in legal advisory positions at pharma companies as well as the EU Commission and did a stint here in the States as a research assistant at Duke University. Today, Alexander has joined us to share his perspective on the evolving EU regulatory framework as it pertains not only to approval, but access to novel medicines employing cell and gene therapeutic approaches. Alexander, it's my pleasure to welcome you and have you on the Life Science Report. Thanks, Peter. It's my pleasure pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward uh, to this discussion. Great. So, Alex, is, is... Many of BackBay's clients are developing novel products such as cell and gene therapies and would be interesting to hear, interested to hear about the EU landscape as it pertains to you know, regional health authorities, those institutions that make country-level reimbursement decisions and sort of the view of those agencies of, of novel technologies and, and how they go about evaluating them. Thanks, Peter. I mean, that's a very important question. I mean, it's really important that we that we paint the right picture here because we've seen success stories and we have seen products which have been less successful in, in that space in, in cell and gene therapies. To start off with a regulatory level, we have since 2007 legislation in place which allows the European Medicines Agency to bring these products to the market quite um, uh, in a speedy manner. And we've seen that some products, and I can, I think I can mention some names here. I mean, uh, Libmeldi from Orchard and also Zinteglo from Bluebird Bio, they came first to Europe. And I think that's a good sign. Uh, it shows that our regulatory system is competitive, can, can uh, live up to the same goals uh, uh, like at the FDA. So that's a p- uh, positive. What is different, I think, from the US side and the European side is that the scrutiny at the, what we call the market access level, the pricing and reimbursement level is certainly a bit tighter here in, in Europe. And the other thing which companies think of before coming, it's a, it's a bit of a patchwork. When you, when you come to Europe, you have to deal with uh, individual co- uh, country decision-making processes. For example, in Germany, they call it an unlock process to first do six months of value assessment and HDA assessment and six months of pricing. The pricing you have as well in the US, but the value assessment, that Mm -hmm. HDA assessment is quite, uh, I would say, even unique to Europe. And the issue is that countries do that separately. So you might have different outcomes in different countries. But to conclude on that first question, I mean, looking back the last five years, we've seen the CAR T cells, all three of them being launched uh, successfully in European markets. We have seen 
Uh, Zolgensma launched successfully uh, for a long time the the, the highest priced medicine uh, in in the world. Uh, we've seen that product launch successful in major European markets. That product, just to give a flavor, has exceeded uh, 50 million euros in uh, in turnover in Germany in in, in less than five months. So mm-hmm. I would say that's a successful launch. I mean that's an uptake companies are expecting. We've also seen other products, Luxturna. We've seen mm-hmm. Lipnali launched. We have, however, and we can talk about that, also seen that other products like Zinteglo have not been uh, so successful. And I know mm-hmm. that on your side of the Atlantic, there's a lot of uh, rumors and discussions why that product has not been rolled out so successfully. We can certainly talk about le- that later on. But uh, I just wanted to paint the picture here that the majority of the products have been quite successful in, Euro- in European markets. Excellent, excellent. And, and definitely want to talk about, you know, sort of, best practices and things for companies to think through early on in their clinical development and strategic plans as it may, you know, sort of affect uptake later on. But maybe to take a take a step back and, you know, we talk about HTAs and certainly as, you know, we at Back Bay when we're talking to our clients as they think about the EU, um, you know, the, the, the sort of regulatory approval is not the same as sort of reimbursement uh, approval. And the, the latter, as you alluded to, is much more balkanized uh, on a regional level. And, you know, with the understanding that, that each country is, is a little bit different, maybe you could, in broad strokes, you know, when we talk about those um, uh, HTAs, you know, what considerations do they take into account? What data do they assess as they sort of balance the the clinical value against the 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 proposed price? Yeah, the difference from the regulatory level at what the what the EMA uh, is assessing is quality, safety, and efficacy. The difference from the from the pricing and reimbursement HTA level is that they want to see direct comparisons. They have the right, and that's what they do. They ask for additional data. They say, well, okay, I know the product has a positive risk-benefit ratio, but that doesn't mean that I'm paying any price. I would like to put things in the perspective. If I have an alternative, I want to see direct comparisons. I want to see a randomized clinical trials uh, conducted with head-to-head comparisons uh, in, in uh, therapy alternatives. Now, that's a challenge because it's not always so easy to to, to compile that long-term data as well, especially for cell and gene therapies, because you might make it to the market close to your competitor. You don't have both, com- usually both companies don't have that data at hand when they are launching. So the the, the argument is very much um, asking payers to say, let's be flexible. Uh, let's really also commit for the company to put real-world evidence uh, data to the table. If we don't have that data at time of launch, why aren't we allowing for a couple of years' time to generate that data? And that's, for example, what we are seeing when it comes to uh, spinal muscular atrophy, where in the meantime, we have three products. Uh, there's Solgensma, there's uh, Spinraza, and there is a, a Ristiplam, I think, a, a product from Roche. Now, mm. the payers are then saying, well, if you don't have that data, you should watch what's happening in the market when all those products are released to patients on a broader scale, not just in their own clinical trials. And we want to see that benchmarking exercise happening when when the product is rolled out to the market. That is something I think we are very supportive of, but it's not always taken into consideration. And mm-hmm. where companies might face challenges where there is a very strict approach in some countries to say, if you don't have RCT data, 
We're not going to say yes to your medicine. And that's where the tangent comes in. Uh, and that's also the difference from the re regulatory level because there it's all about quality, safety, mm -hmm. and efficacy. And you might uh, come in uh, with uh, placebo-controlled trials, and that's usually not acceptable for the payers. Okay. Okay. Great. And certainly in the United States, we're having our own uh, debate over uh, non-RTC and accelerated pathways, specifically as it you know pertains to long-term data generation and the uh, you know the the impact and effect that has on pricing strategy. But that is a topic uh, for another day. So, yeah. um, Alexander, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you know, this regulatory framework may evolve or, or different mechanisms and actions uh, agencies either at the at the EU level or regional level are thinking about implementing that may make it easier or potentially more difficult to not only get these medicines to market, but, but get them in the uh, hands, so to speak, of patients. Yeah, I mean, there is um, there is what we call the pharmaceutical strategy here in Europe. So we're living in a time where there's so much happening. It's not only about cell and gene therapies. It's not only about real-world data to be, to be taken into consideration much more, much more than in the past, and that's a positive development. We're not only talking about we have having a one-stop shop in oncology indications and cell and gene therapies from January 2025 onwards. So that's when they will all bundle their HDA capacities uh, at least for the clin clinical part, and they will do the uh, the HTA at the at the EU level. So that's a one stop shop industry wanted to have. We are talking also at the regulatory level about how can we improve, and that's to your question really. How can we even further improve our regulatory system? We've seen that what we call um, conditional marketing authorizations, which allows a product in an area where there is a high unmet need. It allows a product to come to the market on the basis of phase two data, which is which is very positive. You have to go back to the agency, to the European Medicines Agency in Amsterdam every year to bring in that new data, these new data sets to keep them up to uh, up to date. What will bring products earlier, and uh, you've seen that uh, it's it's probably similar. There's overlap with a breakthrough designation in the in, okay. in the US and the FDA. We call it also a rolling review when it comes to the vaccines, where we've seen a, a very positive, proactive approach by the European Medicines Agency to say, like, we all know we want those vaccines. We want them as, as, as soon as possible. So why, why aren't we get, getting up to speed every, every week with the, with the data to be submitted by the company? Why are not waiting? We shouldn't be waiting for the next uh, uh, data readout. We should be up to date. Mm -hmm. We should be updated uh, any time. That's an approach which I think we might want to take over in other areas of unmet medical mm -hmm. need. If it worked out in the vaccines, we might want to employ that approach also for other areas. Uh, but in, in general terms, I would think, uh, uh, Peter, that um, our regulatory system has um, the right pathways. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have an emergency type uh, marketing yeah. authorization, but we have been flexible and creative enough to create vehicles um, which allowed for a speedy access of innovative medicines, including the COVID-19 vaccine. So I'm quite optimistic on that level. I think the issues companies are facing in Europe are more at the market access level. Some yeah. people call it the first, the fourth hurdle, quality, safety, efficacy, and then HTA pricing. Yeah. That's, that's a major hurdle. And I think... Um, there are some um, elements here which are, we've talked about real-world evidence, which can be seen as solutions to close mm -hmm. data 
And also we've seen uh, something to be talked about, really innovative payment models, pay for yeah. performance guarantees in cell and gene therapies, where we must say we can understand payers in a way to say like, well, we don't know if that patient is still a performer in five or 10 years yeah. time. So how do we hedge that risk of the payer? You can hedge it by committing to, to performance by having clear endpoints for performance uh, to be defined in a contract uh, at time of launch and then payback guarantees and new yeah. model. That seems to be working and that seems to be uh, taking up quite substantially in Europe. Interesting. That, that That's good to hear because <clears throat> from where we are, some of those more innovative models pay for performance given the U.S. system. Uh, I think we haven't looked at it recently in a very data-driven approach, but our impression was given that how people, at least on the private insurance uh, front in the United States, can bounce from plan to plan every few years as job changes and therefore coverage changes, that some of those longer term views that payers are able to take in the EU aren't necessarily as as potentially um, aren't as much of an incentive in the United States uh, for certain types of diseases. So it's good to see that's getting traction. One thing you 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 brought up is is the bundled HTA uh, capacity that's being considered. I'm just wondering, is it still, and it may still be early days, but what is the thinking around what that type of uh, review process would would look like? I, I mean, given from our view, the HDA processes in France and Germany are different and, you know, um, at least back when the, the UK was in the EU, NICE was very different. So sort of, you know, can you talk about where people are sort of thinking that um, what that structure may look like from a, you know, from an EU umbrella? Yeah, it, it, you're pointing to the right uh, aspects here, Peter. I mean, there was a big reluctancy in payers. And, and to be honest, 10 years ago, nobody would have thought that we got something like this. And in a way, when I was traveling to the US, speaking to people in the US, there was that wish of like having a one-stop shop. Yeah. And why, why talking with 27 different governments or institutions in 20 different countries, some of them quite small, uh, about the same product, and then asking different data sets, different forms to be compiled. Against this background, the Commission, the European Commission has proposed uh, some years ago that one-stop shop. Now, it's really important to define it very clearly. It's only about the clinical part of the uh, health technology assessment. Mm -hmm. okay. It is not about the cost effectiveness. Some countries do cost effectiveness. They put the product in the perspective from the costs. Countries like Germany would only do the clinical part of the assessment. And still, um, since it's so much a, a, a value uh, generation exercise, since views on the comparator, what am I benchmarking against, can be very different from country to country. Um, there was a big, uh, uh, there was a need for a big uh, political compromise, and the compromise was: we do it, the, we do the clinical part of the assessment at the EU level. We bring in all the competency from the from the countries. But the countries can make their own judgment about this. They can okay. say it's better than what we're having. So they keep that that decision-making process, which is so critical also to control the healthcare budgets. Mm -hmm. If the EU mm -hmm. would say, well, any of those medicines, they're all great, uh, that would mean that 
I can go into the price negotiations with a very positive verdict. So that is to say that uh, the decision making about value is still at the member states. That was a political compromise. But that is also to say, don't underestimate the EU assessment because they will choose a comparator and the comparator has a price. And any HTA starts with the choosing of the comparator where the company is well advised to look for something which has a high value in terms of price because otherwise I have to stretch quite a bit to get to a price, a good price level later on myself if I have a very cheap uh, uh, comparator, which is at the generic level of prices, very difficult yeah. to get, yeah. get up to the price. So don't underestimate what they're doing at the EU level, even though decision making is at the national level about Sums up, sums down, or somewhere in between. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And so, maybe if we think about some of these regional um, decision-making processes, you could, you know, sort of tell us a, a little bit about the the nuances or specifics or different interesting mechanisms that countries may employ when they are evaluating uh, a seller gene therapy. Yeah. Well, let's start maybe with the orphan drugs, because what we've seen in cell and gene therapies usually have been qualified so far, subject to change, has been qualified as, as orphan drugs. Orphan drugs tend to go first to Germany. I mean, all those products, all those ATMPs I've mentioned, the CAR-Ts, Luxterna, Lipmeldi, Zinteglo, Zolgensma, they all come first to Germany in a way because they have been qualified as orphan drugs. The approach in Germany to orphan drugs is, they can't say is not better than what we're having. They can't mm -hmm. say... So that's already a very important step if if there is a decision by by the by the policymakers to say, yeah, it's an orphan drug, there's an unmet medical need or there's significant benefits. So that is proven already, so it's better than what we're having. I think then it's a it's a market where it's where it's worth establishing your first footprint in Europe. And that's what companies do in, in Germany. It's not always working out. I can we can talk about Bluebird and uh mm -hmm. Uh, a Translana to products which have opted out from the German market and, and in case of Zinteglo also from European markets in its totality, I understand. But um, generally speaking, it's a positive market which generate, uh, which recognizes value in orphan drugs. On ATMPs, I think, as I said before, we've seen them in the EU major markets. There are some shortcomings across cross-border healthcare activities. You might not have a center in all the countries. We have to, to move the patient to where the hospital with the expertise is if there's nothing in that country. There is certainly a shortcoming when it comes to cross-border healthcare. But I would still say that um, Germany uh, and also some other European countries are good markets to establish a good footprint also for external reference pricing purposes mm -hmm. uh, in, in that space. Um, I don't think we need a wafer from HTA uh, systems yeah. for, for cell and gene therapies. I don't think that's realistic to ask for. You can do an HTA assessment in a, in a one-time treatment. However, you always have to bear in mind that benchmarking a one-time treatment against chronic treatment costs, which are accumulating, is, it, is it not always a different, uh, not always an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is something which we might see in some um, uh, products which are under assessment currently, that there are some shortcomings of those systems. Um, last point I wanted to make here, what has certainly helped to, to bring those products to patients are these uh, pay-for-performance guarantees, mm -hmm. which we've seen in the major countries. That has been hedging the risk of the payers, that has moved the payers to actually say yes to reimbursement. Okay, interesting. 
And so I think we've been uh, alluding to specific examples along the way. So maybe we can talk about, you know, maybe, you know, one example of, of how things have gone right and one example of, of you know, how companies have, have struggled either with, you know, their choice of an indication or the way they've designed, um, you know, their clinical development strategy and, and how that has sort of resulted in either... Um, you know, favorable access or, or, or difficulties. Yeah. Maybe let's take the example of um, SMA, spinal muscular mm-hmm. atrophy, as a, as a positive example. We have a rich portfolio of products to choose from, from the physician to treat those children, right? There are three treatment options on the table. All of them have made a market at a certain uh, point in time. We even have competition among those sweet products, right? I mean, it's a diff- very different mode of action, one of them being a one-time treatment. There's a different route of administration. But European markets have accommodated all those sweet treatments to allow for competition. One advice I would give, and I think all those countries have done it in that space, come early, help payers in the horizon scanning talk to payers in the, all the EU countries or the major EU countries three years before launch because they don't want to be taken by surprise mm-hmm. by a product which is high priced. Even look, take a look at the price in the first year mm-hmm. of Spinraza, 500,000 euros. You don't want to be surprised. You don't want to have heard about, you do want to have heard about those products which are coming. So you don't want to take them by surprise. Early stage engagement, horizon scanning, helping payers in that is very helpful. Um, I think Having a certain type of flexibility on certain guarantees to be given to payers in terms of duration of effect, mm-hmm. certain commitment to, uh, to, to bring a real evidence to the table after launch, I think that also helps. So there are good examples in that respect. And even talking about the CAR T-cells is another example where three cell and gene therapies have been, have been accommodated by European systems. Mm-hmm. Where it has not worked out, and that's in the public domain because mm-hmm. the company has also announced it, was Bluebird Bio, where it looks like uh, in some countries, like in Germany, there was a very tough approach. I mean, I'm not saying everything is rosy and perfect mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in Germany. Uh, and, and there was a tough approach by, by some payers. The, it, it was a situation there where, where they have not been recognizing value, where they actually also have not been recognizing the value of pay for performance guarantees the company was willing to give and transfusion independence was the endpoint mm-hmm. to be be brought to the table by Bluebird. That's all in the public domain here. So um, there is that negative example. I think that example has also to do, and I alluded to that before, with the cheap cost of the comparator mm-hmm. because there was an option on the table for better thalassemia patients far from being a perfect option but they had opportunities to 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 solve the issue by by way of aphoresis by by going to hospitals on a permanent uh, 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 in a permanent way and that was quite cheap which is in my opinion, is part of the reason why there was not so much of an appetite to uh, pay a high price for for gene therapy in some countries. Mm-hmm. Also, some German payers I've heard saying like uh, they should have gone first to the Mediterranean because that's where the prevalence is higher. Why do they come first to uh, to Germany? There's not so much prevalence, so maybe that's only we, we are only used to uh, establish a good first price anchor here in in Europe. So there mm-hmm. have been some uh, um, some some uh, 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 considerations like that mentioned by some payers, but I must also say that in my opinion, the company has um, done a very good job in in engaging with payers, and they have been just. 
hit a bit hard by some by some uh, decision makers in not just in Germany but also in in, in some other countries. So uh, yeah, maybe it's uh, the first one the fir- the first um, one moving into that uh, space where costs are quite a bit uh, above the one million. I I can't tell you, but yeah. I think it's also certainly around the the cheap comparator which has been has been a guiding factor for the payers there to have a little bit of a tougher stance on them. Understood. Interesting. Well, I know we're we're coming up on time here, and I think there's plenty more topics from a you know potentially tactical, strategic on how potentially to engage with those payers early on and what those best practices are. And would love to get you back and potentially talk about that and give us an update on some of the policy changes that you that you alluded to. So, I very much thank you, Alexander, for joining the the podcast today. This was very insightful. Um, you can find Alex and his colleagues at eucope, org if you'd like to learn more about all they do. And if you have any questions about biopharma and medtech strategic development, partnering, licensing, or more, you can head over to the podcast page on our website and submit it. That's bblsa.com slash podcasts. If you submit a question, uh, your topic may be on an upcoming podcast. We look forward to hearing from you. Alexander, thanks again for joining us today. Thanks, Peter. It was a great pleasure. Looking forward to being in touch in the future. Excellent. And thanks, everyone, for joining another episode of the Life Science Report from Back Bay Life Science Advisors.